0: So, welcome back to my Success Stories podcast. My name is John Belton, and I'm here today with a great friend of mine, a mentor in some levels, uh, an inspiration, a fellow dog owner, uh, Mr. Rob Cummins. Rob, how are you? Thanks very much for having me, John. So, as you know, today's all about success. And the very first question I'm going to put to you is what does success mean to you?
1: I've been listening to some of the podcasts, so I sort of knew that was going to be the first question, and I was trying to come up with clever answers and sound all knowledgeable. Um, yeah. And it occurred to me just as I was sitting down, I think, for me, success is just being happy.
0: That's perfect.
1: And that sort of applies with everything, whether it's business or whether it's sport or whether it's home or anything else. Um because the metrics that we'd have for business, own and one businesses or two business or three or four or five or doing well in a certain competition or achieving a placing or qualifying for something or they move. You know, before I ran a sub-three marathon, I thought people who ran sub-three marathon were really fast. And as soon as I did, I thought, oh no, that's slow. I need to go 250 or 240 or whatever else fast is. Um, when I, had a vision in my head of what I thought success would be and you achieve that, then you think, no, this isn't successful at all. I did it. It couldn't be, you know. Sub3 isn't fast if I did it. So, so I think just being happy.
0: But well, that's a good you you thought all of that just as you sat down here today. Just sat that's down. extremely impressive. Just that's the happy a happy thing. That's yeah. a good um that's a good example of intense focus under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Come in. That's it I know what I'm going to say. I had, a, I had
1: a really clever answer all practiced in the car coming in and then it's just happy.
0: Every time I write out answers and questions and things I want to talk about, I lose myself, I lose my train of thought, so unfortunately I'm just one of those people that are a good waffler and I like things to be organic. And that's, I think, the world we live in where there's so much false crap out there that it's good to have a bit of real life stuff going on as well. So business-wise, I I might start with that bit, but there's a, a number of different facets and chapters to what Rob Cubbins is, has been, and will be, no doubt. You're an author, which I left out at the start there, and a very impressive one you know, you're a, a husband and you're a, a dog owner, like I said, and a number of different things, and, and now a coach as well on a lot of levels, and you have been, I know, for a few years, a huge cake fan as well, which I know. <laughs> um, but but happiness is something that is very, very important. And I'm going to push it here a little bit by asking, is that because you've experienced unhappiness, that you're feeling happiness? And it might sound like a very obvious question, or that you want happiness to be to be your kind of goal for success.
1: Yeah. Um, I think when I first discovered happiness was when i met Ashling, oh, and that goodness. sounds funny oh, because you know i was obviously happy before it. i'd been married and i'd had kids and and you know when you get married you get married because you fall in love or whatever else it is
0: mm-hmm.
1: but that ended up very badly as sometimes marriages yeah. do and i'd probably been unhappy for a long time And just assumed that that was a normal state of being. You go in, you do something, you're happy, you go home, you're unhappy. And things changed all the time. And then when I met Ash, I was just happy all the time. And I'd never experienced anything like that before in my life. And that went on for years and years. And And it's it's, still still exactly the same. It's mm -hmm. never changed. She makes me happy. I just look at her and I'm happy. And
0: and that, you know, you can see that. That resonates out so quickly.
1: Yeah, and... (sighs) I didn't really know that that something like that existed. I thought it was normal to be happy sometimes and, you know, unhappy sometimes and just, you know, in between other times. Mm. And then when I met her, it didn't matter how shit things were or how great they were. I was just happy all the time.
0: Yeah, the base and level was always there. Yeah.
1: So I think that was definitely, I've forgotten your question. My question, no,
0: I know what it was It and you've answered it, but... A lot of times, when but for me,
1: oh, the unhappiness.
0: Yeah, does it come from a state of being extremely unhappy at some stage? you went, all I want is to just sit here with a no. carefree mind.
1: No, because I didn't know that existed. I thought it was normal to be happy sometimes and unhappy other times. I didn't know it was possible to be just happy all the time. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really think that that was. It's not even something I wished for, because it's not something that ever occurred to me that, that could exist I would have thought it was a normal state of being to be unhappy with some things and happy with others Yeah. so it was quite a surprise when that happened and when it kept on happening
0: so so love makes you happy yeah absolutely and there's nothing wrong with that yeah. that's for sure well tell me a little bit about Ash because I don't think we're going to get away with this conversation being all about Rob and just so some of the people listening here won't know first of all about you and secondly about Ash two people who i both you know, as I said, from from day one in the gym, I actually first met Ash on a mountain run at one stage as she passed me by going up a hill, and then again passed me out then a little bit later as I I tried to catch her. We had a ba- a good battle, which is about ten years ago now, I'd say. Um, but tell us a little bit about Ash because she's a very very impressive athlete in many levels, but a, and and also a very impressive businesswoman and a very sound head, for want of a better phrase.
1: Yeah, she's she thinks about things quite differently to anybody I'd ever met. Um, so when I met Ash, it was 11 or 12 years ago maybe, we were out for a run. with uh, I was out with a couple of lads I ran. We met with Ash and her brother, and that was the first time I'd met her. Um, we ran together. She helped me prepare for a marathon, um, and I sort of discovered how how good a runner she was as I got to know her. She was an ultra runner. She had a lot of Irish records. Um, she tended to win more races than, than not. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a gold medal at a, a European Masters Championship she went on to win a lot more races and, and accomplish a, m- a lot more things where I was just an ordinary average age group athlete I, I I wasn't fast so I was looking at her and she was really impressive you know I thought she was very cool mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, still do yeah absolutely yeah um, I think she taught me a lot of things about training and racing but mostly about the mindset of it. Yeah. Um, she was very black and white about things. So there would have been a when you're trying to decide if you're going to do something. For example, the when we were expanding the business, I had a, a small bike shop before Which I met Ash. Yet. And that was really small. It was like seven. Whereabouts
0: was that? Because I was in it.
1: It was in Clondalkin, in a shopping centre in Clondalkin. Yeah, yeah. And I it was small. It was, was like seven hundred or something before. That's it. exactly right. Yeah, and the tiles were probably still on the wall. It's red or, or something,
0: yellowy red tiles or something. I remember yeah, something, about red, it, yeah. something. Yeah,
1: white and red.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do remember that?
1: Yeah, so it was small local bike shop, and as I got more and more involved in the sport, the business became more specialist, and we sold more and more expensive bikes, but. It was a very typical bike shop. It was dirty and oily and greasy. And people used to come in... ...basically on the reputation that we'd built from racing. We had a, a team of athletes who used to go out and win. We'd show up to the races. We'd have branded everything. Flags and banners and vans. And and we looked look like a big business. And then they'd show up in this pokey little shithole. Mm-hmm. In and they'd be sort of going, where's Wheelworks? Okay. And the two images didn't really match. Mm-hmm. And Ash said that when she came in. And... She immediately said, you need to change here, so it needs to be clean. People can't be coming in here in a suit and getting dirty. Mm -hmm. They can't be brushing off oily bikes and tripping over lumps of carbon fibre on the floor. So she came in and just started cleaning up and throwing stuff out. Which I found very emotionally difficult when she was, you know. (laughs) She used to joke about the sound of bits of carbon fibre hitting the bottom of the bin and she'd see me cringing. Um, you know, I'd be keeping everything just in case I could use it someday. Um, and she just dumped everything that was old or, in, you know, that wasn't in a packet or mm. wasn't wasn't immediately, obviously good. And we started to grow the business when she got involved in it. Um, and we were approached by a friend of mine who owned a very big unit. And he reckoned that we could put a, a bike shop into it and that it would work well. And I went down and had a look at it. And it's a huge unit. It was, the one we were looking at was 8,000 square feet. So it was 12 or 13 times the size of what we had. And I peered in the window, it was empty. And I just shipped myself. I thought, "I, uh, I don't even know where I'd get the money to put stock into this. Never mind how to run a business that size. And I turned around and walked away from it. And we went back to looking for another unit because we'd outgrown the one we were in. And after a couple of months, Ash said to me, if you don't do it now somebody else is going to open the biggest and best bike shop in the country and you're going to fucking kick yourself forever. You'll never forgive yourself that you've missed out on that opportunity. Someone else is going to do it and you're going to be stuck in this little shop forever. So I rang him the next day and went down and met him and did a deal on the unit that night and we moved in a couple of months later and Ash would see things very differently to me. I thought I was the most important person in the business. She very quickly told me I wasn't. I was the biggest bottleneck in the business as as she saw it. So if you come in, I'd sell you the bike and then I'd order the bike and I'd process the payments and I'd go and look up the bank to make sure everything was right. And when the bike came in, I'd build it and then I'd fit you on it and I'd sell all the accessories and I'd do everything. And I wasn't very good at any of those other things. The account stuff and the the administration stuff, I was really bad at it. And Shane
0: can relate over there. He's, <laughs> we're all, we all know that feeling.
1: So, but I could sell. I could sell anything to anybody all day long. But the problem was, if I was in the building for 50 hours, I was only selling for five or six or seven because the rest of the time I was doing all the other stuff that I was useless at. So when we moved to the big business, we were all of a sudden under a huge amount of pressure. We had...
0: When was that, Rob? What year? It was 2010. Oh, Uh, good time for it.
1: Yeah, so the rest of the world was going into Meltdown and we opened a shop that had half a million euros worth of stock in it. And uh, the banks weren't giving out money and we didn't have any. So we financed it in a a sort of an unusual way. Um, The guy that owned the building is also a, a bike distributor. And he had suggested to us that he would give us a stock loan effectively. So Mm -hmm. he would give us the stock and we'd pay for it over a year and a half. And I thought, Chase, that's a great idea. I wonder would five or six other smaller distributors maybe go for that and we could fill the place with stock and we'd have enough to start. And I went and approached a few companies we were dealing with at the time and they all said, yeah, let's do that. So we landed about, it was probably close to a half a million euros worth of stock across the board from everybody in there with no money. We literally had, i say we had about 10 grand and most of that was stock from the old business that mm-hmm. came across and probably an overdraft. We didn't have anything um, to start a business that size. And we had to start paying for this stock fairly quickly because we had to pay for it between 12 and 18 months. We, had to com- we didn't have five years to finance this or anything like that. We, we were under a lot of pressure to pay it back. So Ashling's idea was that I should be on the floor selling every single minute the the shop was open Mm -hmm. and I wasn't allowed to build bikes and I wasn't allowed to answer the phone and I certainly wasn't allowed to look after paperwork or order bikes or any of those things. The stuff that I tended to make mistakes on and a couple of things happened when we did that. I got a huge amount of practice at selling. Mm-hmm. And I was already good at selling. I could sell. I'd been doing it all my life. Yeah, because it was something you believed in. Yeah, but it was something that just came naturally to me. Yeah. Like Ash used to ask me, how do I do it? Somebody would come in looking for a tube and they'd leave an hour later with a €2,000 Euro yeah, bike. No, it's happened to
0: me every time. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd say, how did
1: that happen? And it's like, I have no clue. I don't know. And I, I, would, I would genuinely not have a clue. They'd come in, I'd start chatting to them, they'd leave with a bike. And Ash sort of identified this. Okay, the most valuable thing you can do here is just sell. And then we'll teach people to do everything else. We'll get mechanics. We'll teach people to run the systems and all that sort of stuff. And she came from an industry um, where she was very good at implementing systems. And she put all those systems behind me. And that allowed me to go out. And we didn't have any staff. So it meant I was on the floor 50 or 60 hours a week at least. And most weeks, for the first five months, we didn't take a day off. We were in, we averaged 70 to 80 hours a week, myself and Ash, in there all the time. And there would have been weeks when we hit 100 hours where you were going home at two o'clock in the morning, sleeping for two or three hours and back in at six. Mm-hmm. So there was this huge pressure. But I was on the floor. And one of the things that had made us make the decision to go ahead with the business was bikes were sort of booking the trend of the recession that was going yeah. on in Ireland at the time. So... Bike to work
0: scheme as well. The, the really? bike
1: to work scheme was, was growing. During a recession, people tend to cut back so they'll get rid of a car. And they'll start cycling to work maybe, or they, they might get rid of the second car and start cycling to work. Mm-hmm. Um, fitness was booming. Yeah. Because people weren't working 100 hours a week in the bank and they had time to go and ride their bike, so... Training the gym. The Dublin bike scheme had been introduced, the bike share scheme, so there was an awful lot of things happening all at the same time, which yeah. meant that bikes were right on the, the edge of hitting a bit of a boom. Yeah. And we did all the numbers, we opened the doors, and... In the first three months, we hit our first year's projections. <laughs> the growth was just, it was bananas. It was absolutely bonkers, and it was completely out of control. How did that feel? Oh, it was mental. I, I was just waiting for the day when I was going to walk into the Ferrari dealership and, and buy me Ferrari. Like, it yeah, was just, yeah. it, it, was, it was crazy. Like, there was a day, a Sunday, four or five months after we opened, and one of the big industries, one of the big uh, companies beside us, I, I can't remember if it was Pfizer or Wyatt or one of those big pharma companies, had just introduced the bike-to-work scheme. And in two hours on a Sunday, I sold 23 or 24 bikes on the bike-to-work scheme, Jeez. which would have averaged a €1,000 each, and that was in two hours. But I had there was four girls in, in the shop behind me sort of backing me up and I was literally serving one or two or three customers at a time on yeah. the floor and I'd bring John over, Ash, here's John, he wants this bike, he's going to give you a deposit and I'd bring somebody else over to Grace and, yeah. and we had the systems in place so that I could just stand on the floor and sell. So I got a huge amount of practice at selling, really, really concentrated for a very long time and I think I got, I got quite good at that and... I, I slowly learned how to teach people how yeah, to do it.
0: which is the next step Is a hybrid. Yeah. So on that one, so you, in the first three months, you hit your projected targets for the, fir- for the first year. Yeah. How did it feel when you hit that? Was that it? Was that similar to that moment of breaking the three-hour marathon going, oh, actually, no, that's not it. No, it was,
1: it, w- it was bonkers. It was relief. That it, was good. No, there was no relief. Because the business was completely out of control. No, it was very different to the three-hour marathon. The three-hour marathon, I went and I did it, and it was like, thank God I did that. But actually, it's not what I thought it was. I thought I was going to be a fast person when I went mm. sub tree. But when, after three when, months? When we looked at the numbers after three months, we didn't have time to do anything, John. It was completely mm. out of control. We had this growth and we had that growth. We had 400% growth the first year from the previous year. We changed premises halfway through the first year. Uh, the landlord came in, said, actually, the unit next door is after coming available. It's nearly twice the size. You look like you're struggling here already. Oh, wow. Um, And I've got somebody who needs this unit because that one has an upstairs. I need one without an upstairs. You can go in there, same rent. And I, I couldn't believe, it. like, we'd gone through four or five months of, you know, working crazy hours. And it was gradually starting to settle down at that stage. Mm. But we still hadn't had a day off. And we'd spent a lot of money on the fit out that we didn't have. And we were trying to get that back in. But we went for the bigger unit anyway we could see that that was the way to go with it but we had this crazy growth and we had huge cash flow and we had an awful lot of things going right but we hadn't got a clue how to run a business so from the outside it looked massively successful we were driving a porsche every second bike you saw had a wheelwork sticker on it the business was you know it was booming it was absolutely massive but after about a year and a half when we sat with the accountant and looked at it, he sort of said, you're not making any money. You need to figure out how to run this business or you need to figure out a way of getting out of the country pretty quickly because this is going to end very badly. And... As in your margins? were, What, like... Everything was... We, we'd lost... Seven figures. We'd lost a lot of money in the first year. And we sat down with him, and he said, "This is really bad. You know, I was waiting for him to tell me I could go off and buy the Porsche."
0: Good at saying that, aren't they? Yeah. Had you not bought the Porsche at this stage?
1: Maybe I had. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why there was a big loss at that stage. But yeah, (laughs) um, I was waiting for the Ferrari. Um, So he had said, "There's something really wrong here. You're doing this turnover. You're losing a lot of money. You need to figure out what's going on." So we sat down with him, and, and he ran through everything. And I went back to the business, and I walked through the shop for the first time. I sort of walked through the shop and didn't just go in and start selling. And I I started to look at what was going on around me, and there was a lot of things that I was aware of weren't right. But I had I'd sort of ignored it. I thought, Ah, listen, we're, we're selling so much, and there's so much money coming in that it'll be all right. But after the first year and a half or two years, that money wasn't accumulating, mm-hmm. so something felt wrong.
0: Mm.
1: And I walked around that day with an A4 pad and I thought, okay, I need to, it was something that a guy taught me about 30 years ago. He came to work in in a company that I was in at the time and he came in to turn the business around and implement systems and all that sort of stuff. And he came in and he made a list of all the things that were wrong and that weren't working. And he showed me this list and there might have been 20 things on it. And I immediately said, okay, I'm going to go and start talking to these people and doing that and changing this. And he goes, slow down. He says, if you start changing loads of things, people will get really upset. Mm -hmm. They won't like it and it won't work. People will be resistant to change. So you do one thing at a time. And I said, but we're losing all this money and these things are all wrong. And he said, one thing at a time and it's sorted in 20 weeks. That's less than half a year. And then the business is fixed and the systems are in place. One job a week. That's all you do. So I thought, OK, make the list. And I walked around and I, I... saw products that weren't priced right and I saw stuff in the stock room and in the warehouse that should have been on the floor three months ago and we didn't have on display and and there was too many staff and there was there was problems everywhere so I made the list and I went and sat down uh, in the coffee shop and there was about 120 things on the list not 20 and I, I just I was very much I, I sort of sat there and I didn't know what to do. I was almost there with my head in my hands thinking, you know, I've no, I've no clue how to do this. Yeah, I get that feeling. And I just kept on thinking about what he told me one thing at a time and I looked at it and I thought, okay, I don't know how much runway I've got left here before we run out, but it's not days or weeks. We've got a couple of months and if I can start knocking some of the big things off this list and just go through one at a time, I can probably get through the next year, maybe the next two years because there was a couple of the things that were really big. So I went back to the shop and I talked to Grace, Ashling's daughter, yeah. who works in the business. And like Aisling, she's very good at systems. And I told her what the problem, one of the problems was that I had no clue how to fix. And I said, do you know how to, to fix that? And she looked at it and she said, yeah. And I said, great, okay. Will you fix that? And she said, okay. And I thought, I walked away from that thinking, okay, that's this week's job done. And then I thought, actually, that's only one person in a building with, at the time we probably had close to 30 staff there's a lot more people here could each be fixing the problem. So I went to our workshop manager and our office manager and went to each of them and said, we're going to fix this problem and this problem. And then I thought I'll go off and do one. And then I realised, actually, that's four things I'm going to get fixed in a week. I'll fix one and each of the heads fix another. And we started working on it like that. And it took, it, it took that sort of learning that discipline because I'd be very in I wouldn't have that sort of discipline naturally mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily the systems don't come naturally to me yeah. uh, Ash often jokes that I'll run the, the business on the back of a, a napkin or a cigarette box I'll just take the notes and you know I'll sell a bike like that and then hope that the customer shows up on time and hope that the bike is ready for them when they when they do I get that um, and I sat down with the accountant the following year and I went into the meeting all ready to be told we'd fix things and and he looked at it and went what the fuck are you doing you're losing money and he'd forgotten the previous year's Mm. meeting we were still in business and 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 the losses were smaller but they were still very big oh they were they were still very big losses Mm. and I was looking at it going Jesus and I went through all the stuff and he said yeah no you need to fix more and at the time that I was walking in I thought I'd done as much as I could with all those big, low hanging fruit jobs mm-hmm. and at the start. And I had to go back and do them all again. I had to cut more costs. I had to improve margin. I had to figure out ways of doing those things without any capital, without do more with less. And I didn't really know how to do it and I didn't think it could be done. And I had to go back and start all over again. And that would have taught me, after doing it once and thinking it's good enough, I realised that good enough, good enough isn't good enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When it's right, it's good enough. And that was when, that's when you stop trying. When it's right or when it's perfect, that's right. But good enough.
0: Just doesn't cut the
1: No, it. it doesn't. Because if you can get it good enough, you can go a little bit further and you can get it right. Yeah, And you can't hand something to a customer that's ah, that's good enough. If it's not good enough for me to ride or for me to have, and if it's not perfect, it shouldn't leave the building. You should spend that bit longer on it until it's right. Mm-hmm. And we don't always achieve that, but you should always strive it's to a have it right. Program of excellence. Yeah. And and going back to second year and doing all those things, we went to them the third year and we had it to a stage where we had a very small profit. Mm. But those two years would have taught me Crucial. a huge amount. And I'd look back on that as being the most valuable thing that has ever happened to me in business. The, the adversity. When, yeah, when things really go to shit. You know, you have years when you make money and things are easy and you go and buy the Porsche and it's, it's fine and and things come easy. And then sometimes things are really hard. Mm-hmm. But it's when they're really hard. That you learn. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same with training. It's yeah. the hard training that makes you fitter. When you just go out and ride your bike and stop in the coffee shop and pedal around in the sun, you don't get any fitter. Yeah,
0: well, I get that. No, I, well, you maintain. Exactly. You don't improve. So let's take it back a step from all of that because I know you're saying you didn't know anything about business or you didn't know about systems or whatever else that was but where did you get this like when did you decide you want to get into business Uh I have you always wanted to work for yourself I, I
1: always wanted to be the boss
0: yeah, it really it really grates on me when I'm told you're still not the boss because yeah, Ash is the no, boss no I know
1: Yeah, well when Ash is in the building I pretend I'm the boss <laughs> when, when she's there I, I, I know she is Um my dad had his own company so I always thought okay I want to be the boss but it really grated on me to have somebody tell me what to do stupidly Mm -hmm. but it it drove me completely bananas Um, and most jobs I found that I I found it very difficult to have somebody above me telling me what to do if somebody asked me I was fine but I I always had this thing about authority I wasn't great with it Um, I left school early I didn't have any qualifications I went and started work and I thought I knew everything I thought I could do it (laughs) My way was better than everyone else's way. Um, And I eventually landed in a job that I really, really enjoyed. I was working in the motor trade um, and I was working for a a guy who owned a number of shops and I was helping him with the retail side of things. And I really, really liked it. Mm -hmm. And we had a disagreement about what I felt I was worth and what he felt I was worth. And I just felt I couldn't live on what what he was paying me. Um, I had a, a kid at the time, and I wanted more money than he was willing to give me. And that was really the the impetus that pushed me to to go and, and take the, the step. But it had always been in the back of my head. Yeah. I always wanted to work for myself. So I, I, I was working for him in his retail business, and I was implementing new product lines, and he had motor factors. And one of the product lines that I started to implement was uh, bicycle accessories. Mm. And when I was down with the wholesalers, I was looking at the bikes and I was thinking, I like bikes and yeah, I could do that.
0: So was this at the stage where you were 20 or 40 smokes a day?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was. We used to smoke behind the counter
0: when we were dealing with customers. So. Yeah, and you still managed to sell stuff. You really were a good salesman, <laughs> that was the case.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that was the, the, the culture back then, like back in... 96, 97, 98, it, it was normal to smoke everywhere. You smoked in restaurants, you smoked and probably smoked in cinemas and airplanes and mm-hmm. um, and you certainly smoked in the motor factors when, when the mechanics were coming in and, and probably smoking as well, place. when there was petrol and oil all Makes over the sense.
0: place. Um, so what spurred you to change your life and what got you into exercise and training and, I mean, looking at you now, you look like the know you're a specimen of of human performance shame when you, when I said smoking looked at you there like he couldn't <laughs> believe it said, uh, um, what what caused that change was that a just out of a habit or was that a bet or was it a
1: no i I really hated smoking I hated how I felt with it um I smoked an awful lot so I probably had a very accelerated. I had the negative side of it accelerated. So if somebody smokes five or ten cigarettes a day, it might take them 20 or 30 years before they feel really bad. I smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day when I was in my early 20s. So I felt really bad all the time. I was tired all the time. I was sick all the time. I'd have the flu or colds. Um, I I, I couldn't walk up the stairs without being out of breath. I was really unhealthy every day. Started off. Uh, I'd wake up I'd have a cigarette Then I'd go to the bathroom And I'd spend the next 10 minutes Coughing up Brown and black Rubbish out of me So it was Extremely unhealthy And And that's
0: when you decided Something needed to change
1: Well I tried several times I tried All sorts of things I tried the nicotine patches I tried all those things And nothing worked I couldn't I couldn't stop And I sort of thought That once you were a smoker You were a smoker for life And I opened the business The bike shop in August And things sort of reached a a peak around Christmas, um, between, you know, drinking at Christmas and smoking too much and I felt really bad and and went into a bookshop one day looking to see if I could find a book about giving up smoking. And I discovered a book by a guy called um, Alan something, I can't think of his name now, but it was The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Um, Very famous book, Okay. okay. Alan Carr. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So very famous book. And ironically, Alan Carr died of cancer, but he discovered a way of teaching people so that they they could stop smoking. And I read the book and within about two or three days, I could feel it working. And I started getting nervous and it's like, geez, these cigarettes have been a crutch for a long time. Maybe I don't want to give them up completely. So it took me three months to read the book and at the time i she wasn't read doing the book any sports really slowly. read it really slowly <laughs> at the time i was a voracious reader because i didn't yeah, do any sports so i'd read a book in a couple of days mm. and all of a sudden i'm i'm reading you know a page a night but it completely undoes all of the brainwashing that we'd been you know movie stars smoking, looking really cool and all that sort of stuff. And he said, they're not really cool. They've got a cigarette in their hands, you know. And I think that's really driven home to me now when I see somebody walking around along with one of these vapes and it, they just look completely ridiculous. Completely. You know, there's nothing cool about it. Whereas, you know, you 20 va- or... Yeah. <laughs> 20 or 30 years ago, they made cigarettes look really cool because the movie stars used to do it. Yeah. You used to see them. But again, it was only a way of brainwashing you to mm-hmm. think that cigarettes were cool, but they weren't.
0: So exercise then was your catalyst once you got that three-month period of reading the book. On yeah, your belt.
1: I, I read the book, and the young guy that was working for me uh, had been at me to come out mountain biking with him. So I bought myself a mountain bike as a an incentive to stay off cigarettes, I suppose, and as a, a reward for quitting, and I went out mountain biking with him. And I was so unfit. It was just a complete disaster. We drove up and parked at the car park, and then it was a... Whatever it was, a four or five a k climb to the top. No, it was uh, it wasn't even as biggest as ball and It was the Hellfire Club. Oh yeah, yeah. And it, we went up through one of the trails, and I was literally stopping every 500 meters. I couldn't cycle any further than that, and I'd stop and I'd be coughing up rubbish. And about two thirds of the way up, I said, "Okay, that's it. I've had enough of this shit. I'm going home. This is the stupidest idea I've ever had." It's you know, and he said, "Okay, listen, we'll go up a little bit further, and we'll go down instead of going back down the fire road that we've come up. We'll go down the single track trail. We'll go down the mountain bike trail." And I said, okay, and we went up and he turned down this trail and I followed him down. I I couldn't stay with him, but it was just the most fun I'd ever had. It was incredible. The adrenaline rush was unbelievable. And we got to the bottom and I immediately said to him, let's go back up and do it again. And again, it took me an hour maybe to get up Mm -hmm. to 5k and we got to the top and we did it again. But I was completely hooked. I loved it. Um, And I did the mountain biking thing for a couple of years um, went and tried a race and came last. And uh, after a couple of years, I, I bought a road bike because with the mountain bike and you were driving up to the trails and you were, yes, you know, it was an hour continues. there and an hour back. So with the road bike, you could walk out the door and you were there. So I started cycling and I started a bit of racing. And I stuck at that for a few years. And, and the more I did it, the more addictive it became. Um, and because I was coming from such a low base with the smoke and the health and everything else I was probably seeing very quick and, yeah. and, and constant gains
0: So I know people listening to this are going to go I know what he did he gave up one addiction and then he got addicted to something else and, and I'm sure people have said that to you
1: yeah um, and what, do you,
0: what do you say back to that because yeah they're probably right well look I know they probably um, are
1: but it's an addiction that makes me very happy yeah exactly uh, and, it, and fits, it fits in with the business um, it fits in with Ashling. She's a runner. She cycles with me a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. She does the triathlon with me. Yeah. So it's an addiction that makes me much healthier and much happier. Um, and I don't see a downside to it. So if they want to call it an addiction, they can. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably more of an obsession than an addiction. An adi- addiction.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, you know, I just know that's what people are going to say because they just like to derail you. And I'm yeah. sure that's something that you. I mean, there's. One thing I love talking about on this is, first of all, when people set out big goals for themselves and they want to achieve something, whether it's in business or whether it's in training or whether it's whatever else it is, there's a sacrifice, I think. you know, We, we make a sacrifice and that sacrifice could be, okay, what are, you, what are you gonna give up? You're not gonna have maybe as much time as you'd like to watch Netflix or you're not gonna have as much time as you'd like to.
1: I think the sacrifice thing is something I've always disagreed with. I don't think we make any sacrifices. When it's something to do with going out and enjoying ourselves, we're not making any sacrifices. If you're if you're not watching television or you're not watching something else, I see that as an investment.
0: Mm. Sacrifice in... is probably the wrong word. Yeah, what do you? But I, think l-
1: but I think a lot of people see it like that. Yeah, they do. And the problem with seeing it like that is you see it as a negative thing. Whereas if you're going out running, that's an investment in yourself. What you're not doing has nothing to do with what you are doing. Yeah. So I think. The people who sacrifice for me to do the sport that I do are Ashling, are and the people who work for me. They're the people who actually have to give something up so that I can do it, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to me giving something up. If it means I eat a little bit less cake or if it means I have to get up at five o'clock in the morning instead of six or seven, or if it means I have to go to bed at nine o'clock instead of staying up until ten or eleven... That's just a choice that I'm making so that mm. I can do what I want to do. And I, I stopped seeing that as a sacrifice a long time ago because it felt like a negative thing instead of a positive thing. Yeah. And I didn't want it to feel like that. And I also thought it was sort of selfish to think. It's, it made me feel like I was turning into a martyr. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm giving up all these things so that I can be better. And... I wasn't I was doing something I wanted to do I want to go ride my bike I want to run I want to swim I want to feel a certain way So why do you need to There, there should no be no, no sacrifice There should be no
0: sacrifice yeah. Nor should there be anyone else's opinion on it
1: Yeah Well
0: Except for Ashling's, maybe Well yeah Okay that's fair enough I have a whole load of questions I wanted to ask okay. you But then we'll Pulled into a whole load sorry. of Sorry No don't be sorry at all But Ironman was the next thing That I think this naturally Comes down to Because when I met you You were getting ready To go to Kona Yeah Sorry, not when I met you. When I first started doing a bit of work with you, yeah. it was, that was 2011, I'd say, was it? Or 12?
1: Uh, 12. 12. Uh, 11 was the first time I tried to, to qualify for Kona. Uh, so that's the Ironman World Championships. Um, and I tried qualifying in 11 after five or six months training. And, and a busy, and
0: busy work time, obviously. Yeah, after it, it was it was the year through. after
1: we'd opened the, And that was part of the things not being right in the business as well when I started training to try and qualify for Kona one of the things with that is there's a huge amount of training and it definitely takes from other stuff yeah the business Um, as well. you don't have the energy and the mental capacity just because you're so tired to deal with things Mm. that you should be dealing with and I made that decision I knew the business is going to suffer am I willing to do that yeah I am because I want this
0: over it here it comes more. back to that what are you going to give exactly, exactly? and I yeah. know that when my training's going well I have this which I have to retrain out of my head every now and then but I go hold on I'm training well the business must be going yeah. bad there must be yeah. something wrong here yeah.
1: <laughs> You gra- you do get that balance better yeah. I have that balance better now in in the training and the work balance um, that's not to say that I'm training as well as I was back then I'm not going to know that until I race next year mm. but I think you do learn how to balance those things better. Yeah. You learn how to run the business more efficiently and you'll maybe learn how to train more efficiently as well. Yeah. So...
0: That comes with adversity of crashing out, burning out. When I met you, yeah. you'd, you had been on a fairly strict regime with food. Yeah. You were up in the morning swimming on it, fasted with just a black coffee. Yeah. You were coming in to try and train. You were chronic pain with your back. Yeah. That was pre-surgery in the back, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And... Um, you you looked like it. You you had a dishevelled look in your yeah. on your face at times. A little more than uh, even the most iron men when they're training a lot will look tired at times. A little more than what I thought was normal. And, and I suppose sometimes we have to hit that wall to realise, okay, that wasn't balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe you're, you're like me there. I need to kind of make the mistake myself to really learn. I can be told it, but yeah. I kind of have to still make that mistake sometimes. Yeah. Unfortunately, so Kona was a big. My, my, I, anyone I speak to in the in that world, I mean, Kona is the pinnacle. Is that is that fair yeah. to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And how many Irish people get into that every year? How does it work out? Um,
1: an average year is probably three or four to a dozen. Okay. I think the biggest year we've had was twenty.
0: How many times have you done it? Twice, and it's qualifier. So you qualify yeah. for your age group. Yeah. Doing that,
1: so you're racing Ironman. You need to finish, probably top depending on your age group, how many people there is racing. Mm. For my age group, it'd be top three, four, five typically. And uh, you did
0: one in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah. Brighton uh, or something like uh, that? Yeah, Bolton. Bolton, yeah. yeah. Um, and then got to Kona. Yeah. And how was that?
1: Oh, Kona's incredible.
0: The it's pants a, it,
1: party. It, 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 the underpants party, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very humbling because I'd spent two years training really hard and you're sort of getting to a stage where you're starting to feel fast. And you show up to a race and you're finishing right at the front, you know. And even when you show up to a small race at home and you're training through it, you might have done 30 hours training and you're finishing the top three or four or five. You sort of start to think you're fast, you know. And then you show up to Kona and you come 600 and you realize, oh, no, I'm not fast at all. You know, there's a whole other level outside of,
0: outside of Ireland. Ireland
1: and the UK, you know. Um, so the the first year was very humbling.
0: Mm. But it was, an, it's, I mean, it's just swimming in... Hawaii, you're swimming yeah. in beautiful crystal clear waters yeah, with yeah. turtles around you, yeah. you're cycling around these volcanic islands, I suppose, for yeah. want of a better phrase, so it's all stunning, I can yeah. imagine, but is what, talk through what a, a typical Ironman training week is like, because for some people here, they're not going to be able to comprehend what's involved, say, you know period of intensification in your training higher volume, typical day, typical week. Okay uh,
1: typical week when I was working with you back then would have been, Monday was a a 4k swim in the morning, uh, and then I'd be on the bike for about 180k would be a normal ride, so 5 to 6 hours depending on the terrain, and I'd get off and run for 60 to 75 minutes. So it'd be three quarters of an Ironman on a Monday. Tuesday would be a two and a half or a three hour run. Uh, Wednesday would be a day off. Uh, Thursday and Friday would be double sessions, so they'd be swim in the morning Uh, and either a bike or a run after that Uh, Saturday would be a double session again it would have been a swim in the morning with a run after Uh, and Sunday would have been another bike session that would have been a typical week so you're looking about 20 to 18 to 25 hours that's would be a... would be a normal week yeah. of, of actual training um, and to do 20 hours of training probably takes 30 hours out of your life between getting to the pool yeah, and yeah. prep and everything else yeah
0: so 30 hours of training on top of a 40 hour work week
1: yeah I was probably working less then yeah. so that was I think I, I often think one of my strengths and weaknesses at the same time is I have the ability to put on a set of blinkers and Completely ignore everything else and just plow towards your goal. One goal. And yeah. that often means trampling across people and leaving a wake of destruction behind me. But I usually get the job done. Um, I've learned to do that a little bit less as I've gotten older and take other people into consideration. Um, but it was definitely very helpful with things like. Dealing with the problems in the shop and learning how to grow that, y- you just switch off everything else on the outside and yeah. you just plow towards something. Put your and the same for, the wheel. yeah, and the same with the Kona thing. Mm. It was it was a case of I wanted to do something that was very difficult, so you just put the head down, but everything else suffered around that. So um, at the time, I was probably working 30 hours a week when I was at that very heavy training load, but then when the load would lift I'd be back in 50, 60, 70 hours yeah. a week dealing with the mess that had built up Accumulate. over the three or four months or yeah. the five months leading into the race
0: when you when you set a goal mm-hmm. have you have you kind of a, a protocol or a plan do you write it down do you visualise it do you tattoo it onto your leg do you or is it just something that you go no I'm going to do that now that's it Um, or does it I change? usually I
1: usually tell people yeah um, and try and make myself accountable yeah um, when I decided I was going to do the Kona thing um, You told me Yeah but before we got to you there was a there was a, a there's a woman who runs a a magazine in Ireland called The Outsider Oh yeah um, was the editor at the time and Roisin contacted me she wanted to interview Ashling. and the conversation went something like Ashling had been winning races and stuff. So she wanted to interview her. She'd done well and maybe the European champs or I can't remember what the race was. But it was probably some of the ultra stuff that really held the the attraction for them. And I says, I'll be there as well. And, I, you know, I can chat to you. And she said something like, oh, no, we just want fast people or something. <laughs> Good people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fucking show you. So it was that was around the time that I'd been thinking about the Kona thing. And I said it to Ash, I said, do you think I can do this? You know, because at the time I was a very slow athlete, you know, I'd done two Ironmans and I'd finished 950th and 1050th or something like that. I was nowhere, you know, I'd done one and finished near the back and I'd, I'd trained like crazy and did another one and still finished at the back. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm just slow, you know. And I said it to Ash, I said, do you think I can actually do this? And she said, yeah, I definitely can. So um, we contacted, I I started Googling it, you know. Because that's what you do. That's you know? what you do if you I, yeah. want to achieve a, so a big goal. The first the first answer might have been, you know, the typical Kona qualifier trains, you know, 30 hours a week. And I thought, fuck, I can't tell Ash that. Mm-hmm. And the second one might have been like the typical Kona qualifier trains 20 hours a week, you know. And the third one might have been that you train eight hours a week. And I thought, okay, well, eight hours a week, I could definitely fit in. I'm probably nearly doing that at the moment. I wonder why I'm not fast. And uh, I, I went to Ash and I I, I thought I'd, I'd lead with the the bad news first. You know, it's like, OK, I, I did some research on how much I need to train for this kind of thing. And this guy says you need to do 30 hours a week. But I, I think there's somebody else yeah. who says you can do it 20 hours a week. And it's like, OK, we'll roll it back. To th- and she said, OK, well, instead of just looking up useful shit on, on the Internet or useless shit on the Internet, why don't you go and ask somebody who actually knows, you know, get, get a coach and stop just, you know, reading rubbish off the Internet. So I thought, OK, well, that's very typical action, you know, cuts straight through all the rubbish and gets to the point. So we contacted a coach, a guy who'd raced as a pro triathlete and was coaching people and we reckoned he was the most knowledgeable guy in the country at the time. And uh, and we asked him, could I could I qualify? Did he think I could qualify? And he looked at me and he went, no. <laughs> 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 You're slow, man, you know, because he knew me, he'd seen me racing, you know, and I wasn't any faster at the, the short stuff than I was at the the long stuff. Same and pace. I was really disappointed because I thought, you know, Ashton said yes, so everybody else is going to say yeah. And... He said, maybe if you spent two years and gave up the rest of your life, you know. So I said, well, do you know how to coach somebody to get them to Kona? And he said, yeah, of course I do. And I said, well, give me that plan. Just give me the plan. And if you break me, I'll take responsibility. If it doesn't work, I'll take responsibility. And he looked at me and he was really dubious. And he thought, oh, man, this is just going to be a mess, you know. But he agreed anyway. And the first week's training he gave me, the first eight days was 30 hours. Like I'd been doing Six hours a week Leading up to this And thinking and I was trying to break it. And I thought He's either trying to make a point And break me And be done with this stupidity Or this is actually What's required You know But I did the, the 30 hours And on the Sunday Which would have been The eighth day um, I was He had me cycle 50k Do a sprint race And cycle home So we cycled to the race And did the race And I finished third And won the age group No and way
0: I'd never won anything In my entire life You know
1: And I'd never been On a podium anywhere And and we'd actually Sponsored the race So I got a Wheelworks voucher That was one the
0: The, par- or the park one, No
1: or it was it? a Small triathlon Down in uh In Carlow I think it was Brilliant. But I, I won a Wheelworks voucher Because <laughs> well we Sponsored the race So But I immediately went Jesus it's that simple You just do a shitload of training And you get fast Straight away And, and get third And uh and the, the problem then was that was actually what was required. 20 plus hours a week was what was required, especially on the short scale that I'd given him. I told him we wanted to qualify that year, you know, um, but I just kept falling apart. I would do two or three weeks like that and I'd be so fried. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. Mm. Like I was really screwed up. I was destroyed. I would not be able to get out of bed. I wouldn't be able to do anything for two or three days training. And, and then when I'd come back, it'd be I'd go out and try and run and I'd last 15 minutes and I'd walk home or it was just a complete disaster mm. and then i'd get going again and then i'd be flying and so in answer to your question sorry getting back to your original question once we'd started i rang roshian up and i said i have an idea i'm doing this trying to qualify for the iron world champs thing i'll write you an article or a series of articles i'm going to do Ironman uk in the summer are you interested in carrying that and she said yeah that's a great idea so i i wrote a, a series of articles for roshian and the outsider tracking
0: your training. The, the and training. Anything. So yeah. that
1: made me very accountable because that was going out. Is that where
0: your blog started then?
1: That, um,
0: Cause you're, yeah, you're that, would have, been, now, yeah, aren't that
1: you? would have been the original blog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because
0: so. yeah, the blog's brilliant. Yeah. So you're a, a man of many talents. The <laughs> author piece definitely comes into it as well. Um, and where When did you release your book? Two, uh, two years ago was it
1: two years ago yeah it's December two years ago
0: uh, what's it called Chasing Cona. Chasing Coney Chasing yeah. Cona, it's a great book and I've I read I would say probably at the same rate that you read your giving up cigarette <laughs> book but I've read, <laughs> read most of it um, and it is a fantastic one and for a while I went I was inspired to do an Ironman but as I look at the volume of training in it I know it, I'm not prepared to make that sacrifice just yet um, because we could talk for it I think the two could going get stuck into this now And start talking about the, the big ins and outs of the training Let's skip on a little bit from there To what you're currently doing now Because your Instagram feed First of all you're constantly selling bikes Because that's what you do And I can see them You're not even selling them You're putting pictures up Teasing all of us Yeah. And we're inevitably then going to go and buy them But secondly How many dogs currently are in your house?
1: Ashling's immediate answer to that question Is we own three dogs so that we don't look like mental people Um, but we foster Ashlyn got involved in fostering pups for uh, a rescue uh, a couple of years ago now and if you have to stop and count them then it's probably a bad thing I'd say there's about 10 including our own tree there's a couple of pups that are short term there's a couple of longer term ones there's two or three of them due to go after Christmas
0: because when I'm for when yourself and Ash came into the gym originally Bella was in there and Ash was afraid of her life yeah. and to this day she would still say she's afraid of dogs is that yeah. probably she's she a bit nervous. better now She's I would nervous. Say. <laughs> yeah she's nervous about dogs yeah So yeah. But nothing like exposing yourself yeah, to your fear absolutely, put yourself yeah. just get 10 dogs but that
1: would be very typical of Ash yeah You know, it, does, it doesn't matter that you're afraid of something you do it anyway
0: exactly and, but that's a very inspirational thing to do to sit like you're given uh, did you move house more or less specifically to, to be able to handle more dogs or was that just by Pre- chance
1: yeah no that's that's it's probably not something you'd admit, except for here I am on a podcast admitting it. Yeah, we moved so that we'd have big gardens for the dogs, and we were out in the country. And and I suppose it was inevitable that with big gardens and fields, that more dogs were going to land.
0: I I love the line in one of your uh, one of your blogs where you found yourself cycling along a laneway looking in over the field at tractors, wondering if you <laughs> get me. Once you moved to the country, your your uh, your your countryman, whatever it was, kicked in. You wanted you wanted to come back from your cycle to put down. Uh, whatever they were, fence posts. Yeah. And you, did you get a lawnmower tractor in the end? Yeah, I got Everyone, a lawnmower every tractor. Every man's dream yeah, to have a good yeah, lawnmower tractor and yeah. a good shed to put it in.
1: Yeah, big shed.
0: Yeah. Uh, so Rob, like you've accomplished a huge amount in since 2010 alone. A change of business Two so you've sorry two Ironman in Kona. How many other ones you did? Definitely two in the UK as well.
1: Uh, I think I've 17 in total.
0: 17 Ironmans. Yeah, I think so. God. Okay, well, there you go. That's in there, 11 there, years? Or 10? Uh, 2008. 2000, that's in nine years. Di- uh, 11 11 years? 11 years. 11 years, yeah. 11 years was yeah. right the first
1: time. Yeah, there was two years I think I didn't do one. I didn't race in, I don't know, 10 and 12 or 13 or something. 14.
0: What's your biggest achievement that you What's your? What are you most proud of in life?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I... <laughs> I like the
0: shop That's good
1: I really like the shop That's good that you like it I like walking in And looking around I I love people's reaction to it I hate the shop Because every time I go out there (laughs) I get snared by this fella Who sells me a
0: bike And a dog as well I love people's reaction You know It's
1: amazing Not long after we opened it A guy walked into the shop This is I don't know 2010 It might have been a couple of months After we opened And he walked in And he was on, on the phone To somebody And we were at the counter, and he walks in, and he said something along the lines of, "Holy shit, you want to see this fucking place?" He says, "I'll call you back," and hung up. and And I thought, that's exactly the that's exactly what I wanted from the shop. Yeah, I, yeah. I want well everyone's factor. response to be, "Holy shit, look at this place!" Mm. And I walk in, and I see people having that response. And I walk in, and I still see a hundred things on that, that list that need to be done.
0: What drives you then? What drives in? I want to be the doing? best. Okay,
1: let's... I don't know that I ever will be, but I want to have the best bike shop in the world. It used to be the best bike shop in the country. I want to... I I just want to be the best. And if the best bike shop is in Dublin, there's no reason why it wouldn't be in Dublin instead of in New York or in any other part of the world. I want to be the best. And I don't know that I'll ever get there, but that's what I want. That's what you're striving for. From a business point of view. Um, I used to think I wanted 20 bike shops, but then I'd never get to, problems. Well, I'd never get to ride them then Yeah. <laughs> so I think a, a friend of mine said it to me years ago when I was looking at expanding into multiple units and he said it, it was similar to what you said about the blog he started reading the blog and he said we'd be out riding on a Sunday and we'd go in for a coffee and some, some weeks the conversation will come up about Rob's blog and he says we're all similar we're all businessmen we're in our 50s and 60s We've plenty of money. We have successful businesses. He said, we all want what you have. We all want to be racing Ironman's two or three times a year. We want to be in Kona. We'd love that. That's the dream that we have. Mm. And he said, if you open a second or third or fourth shop, you you're it. going to be where we are in 10 years, looking at somebody else who's racing Kona. So what do you want more? Do you want to be an athlete or do you want the big
0: business? Is that a battle for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, same. And the the day He said that, I immediately thought, "Okay, that's it, I'm walking away from that. And we'd progressed that quite a long way. I remember that. And I walked away from that. I decided, no, I want to have the lifestyle of riding and swimming and running. And I've gone back to it several times. I almost bought a shop a couple of years ago, um, put in an offer on a shop. And it it was probably a half-hearted offer. Because I sort of, a part of me was afraid that if I go down this road, I know. You know not... what you'd be giving. Yeah. So there is always that drive to grow the business that way. Um, but I think instead of having that growth, instead of having that drive to just grow it, I want it to be better. So I think that's how I scratch that itch now is, and that was part of the coaching thing. Because the coaching thing was something that I decided to start as a business because I could control how big it was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be like a shop that I needed to have staff in or 20 staff or 20 shops or anything else. It was something that I could decide, I'm going to coach five people and I'll get me kicks out of that or I'm going to coach 15 people and I'll get me kicks out of that. But I can can grow it or shrink it and I, I can make it fit into my life.
0: Okay. So just to close, a few last little questions. What is your, like, Who who's your mentor? Who drives you aside from Ash? Is there anyone that you look at that you're like, that's what I want, that's who I want to be, or that's the type of life I want to live, or do you just live your own story? Uh,
1: I've, I've had a lot of them. Uh, my dad would have been the first one um, from a business point of view, um, and I've had a couple of business coaches. Ash would be the biggest influence in my life. Mm-hmm. Um by a long way in, in everything uh, personally uh, as a person as an athlete in the business she's taught me more yeah. than anybody else So she and she'd still drive me more than anybody else she'd make me question what I'm doing more than anybody else um, I look at my mum and dad and I still think they're probably the biggest influence in my life apart from mm-hmm. apart from anybody else the business stuff I try and I try and pick people like you that are successful and I'll bring you for coffee and I'll have a chat with you and pick your are. pick your brain when you're not looking, you know? And I mm. do that all the time because I, funny I'm I've been
0: doing that with you as well.
1: Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested in, in people's ideas of business and yeah. and I suppose you, you surround yourself or or I've always found that when I started to get into the sport, I surrounded myself with people who were into the sport. Mm. And that was where my circle of friends eventually yeah. settled um, and the same thing has happened with business um, a lot of the people I'd know and a lot of the people that I'd ride with and and spend time with are, are not necessarily own their own business but w- would be successful in business and successful in their life and I'll I try and learn from everybody because I think like I said at the start success is being happy yeah. and there's more than one way to do that you don't have to have 20 shops to be successful in business. Having one shop that's really don't good and problems. still being able to ride my bike every day mm. is probably a bigger measure of success for me than yeah. more money in the bank.
0: Do you remember the day, you, I'm sure you don't, the day I bought the book off you in the shop, you signed it and you said, I'd had a conversation with you about a premises I was looking at for a wellness retreat. Okay. And you said something along the lines of get your wellness retreat. Okay. You might have put a get the fucking wellness. Yeah, I'd say there probably was. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because every single time I open a book, I looked at at that. Yeah. And you know that has progressed and moved forward at a good pace. But it is funny how, you know, like that you said about meeting other business people and all that sort of stuff and for me it's the same I've always noticed I remember going for dinner with you one time and getting a couple of little bits of information oh that's good now I'm gonna keep that in mind about systems about the e-myth was the book that you spoke to me about and all this stuff and it's great all of these tools we pick up along the way listen I'm I know we could chat I think we'll have to come in for a part two and maybe bring Ashling and the 10 dogs in for that (laughs) as well and upcoming stuff and any you know bit of self-promotion so first of all you are taking on athletes for coaching is that fair to put out in the universe no not no, really not. okay no, sorry don't say that.
1: no that's okay um we have a very small number of athletes we coach uh, and i think we're taking on our own chatting to a guy yeah. that, that you'd sent to me recently but mm. we're not i'm not actively taking on okay. anybody else it, it it's as big as i want it to be
0: okay um what about books anymore uh,
1: i've just launched one um another one yeah i missed that uh the paperback is coming out this weekend or early next week, I um, think. So what's it on? Uh, it's the the training side of the the Ironman story. So it's it's about the lessons I learned with training. Like if you train 30 hours as opposed to six, that you'll get fitter and faster, which seems really obvious. Yeah, and you come through you Easy. <laughs> So um, there was a lot of things I learned alongside that. Okay. So and, and where can and, you
0: get that? Can you get it online? Uh,
1: it's available as an e-book now and the paperback will be out on Amazon next week. So and, middle of December.
0: Okay, e-book so where do you get an ebook now? Through uh, your Amaz- website. Only through Amazon. Um, only through Amazon. Only okay, through brilliant. Amazon. So
1: you download that for the Kindle.
0: Brilliant. And then if anyone wants a bike,
1: Wheelworks. Wheelworks in I- Liffey Valley in Dublin. Yeah, it's the only place to buy a bike. There's no other bike shops in the country, in the visiting. country
0: worth visiting. Exactly. I agree in with fact, all of you that. In fact, you should
1: probably fly in from the UK or any other country yeah. as well. We'll You'll put you up in a ship hotel. ship out if you had to. We won't ship them out. They'll need to come in and meet us, and we'll we'll put them on the right bike and, and get bike them sorted fit. out. Do a bike fit. And, and all that, that is something
0: that I do recommend is a proper bike fit. Listen, Rob, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you very much for your time. I know you're a very busy man.
1: Delighted to come in, John. Really uh, enjoyed
0: it. We will chat again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you.